Just a quick note about this presentation. Producing a podcast about exposure uh, proved to be a little bit more difficult than I initially thought. Exposure is an exceedingly visual topic, and I'm trying to convey knowledge of exposure without using any visuals at all. This is, like I said, proved a little bit more difficult than I thought. So bear with me during the podcast. I do go over some of these concepts a couple times in slightly different ways, just to make sure that everybody gets a good, solid understanding of what it is I'm trying to convey. Again, exposure is a crazy topic to talk about without using any visuals. But here we go, and I really hope you get something out of this. Comments are always welcome. I'd love to know if this was helpful, what parts were good, what parts were bad. Anyway, hopefully it helps you on your journey to being a better photographer. Cheers. Okay, welcome to this podcast about all things exposure. So we're going to cover dynamic range, we're going to cover bracketing, HDR photography, where to place your exposure, how to shift that dynamic range around to get the exposure that you want. We'll talk about exposure in the highlights, we'll talk about exposure in the shadows, we'll talk about filtration, we'll talk about using that little LCD screen on the back of your camera, and then we'll do a couple listener submitted questions. The first podcast, if you went through it, hopefully helped you to start thinking more like a camera and disconnecting that connection between your brain and your eyes that you've gotten so used to and sort of giving you a few ideas on how to reshape that and remake that connection in a different way so that you can start to see things through your lens without actually picking up your camera. So that was sort of an overview of ideas to give you ways to think differently about your photography. Today we're going to talk about some technical things, and that's namely exposure. Exposure is simply the art or the craft of recording a good image on whatever system it is you're using, digital or film. Exposure helps tell our stories because we choose what details are important in the light or in the shadow. And this automatically gives our viewers an instant clue as to what visual information they're going to see and how that helps tell your story, how that focuses the attention of your audience quickly, and how that provides a little mystery or tone or feeling or emotion in your image. A very bright, high-key image conveys a certain emotion. A very dark, low-key image conveys a certain emotion. An evenly lit landscape conveys a different emotion. These are all techniques and tools, along with focus and depth of field and shutter speed and all of these other things we've talked about earlier. These are all different things you can do to tell your story. But exposure is probably the most important, obviously. In order to get started with exposure, I think the first place is just to start understanding your digital system. I assume everyone is shooting digital or even in your film system just understanding your camera. So we'll just go over the basics really fast. Obviously your camera consists of a body and a lens. The lens has your focus and your f-stop, your aperture. The aperture obviously is the hole that allows light to come through the lens. So the smaller the number, f2.8, the larger the hole, f16, f22, the smaller the hole. F-stop controls depth of field. Depth of field, again, is simply the range of things within your frame that are in focus. So from maybe one foot to six feet, or six inches to eight inches, or infinity. So you have shallow depth of field, and you have deep depth of field. On your camera body, you have shutter speed, which is the amount of time the shutter is open to expose the sensor or film plane to light. Shutter speed controls motion blur or it freezes motion. For instance, a fast flying bird, you shoot it at a two thousandth of a second, you'll get a nice tack sharp bird. 
The third exposure control is ISO, or sensitivity of your sensor. And the higher the ISO, you're simply turning up the volume of the output of your sensor. And again, as you do this, you will increase the noise of that signal, just like you would a stereo. As you increase the volume of an old recording, for instance, you'll hear more of the defects. Same thing with photography. As you increase the volume of the signal coming off your sensor, you will increase the noise. But you gain exposure. Those are the three main elements you have to work with your exposure. F-stop, shutter speed, ISO. Some people call it the exposure triangle. The essence of exposure is simply learning the relationship between those three elements and how they work together to provide you with the best digital negative, so to speak, the best recording of the image in front of the camera. And that's really all you want. You want the best recording of the image, whether it's film or digital, so that you can take that later on and do your manipulations for your paper print or your digital print or whatever it is you're going to exhibit your photo with. That's the idea, is to go away from your photo session with the best digital negative you can possibly get. But again, you need to really understand the relationships between f-stop, ISO, and shutter speed. So for instance, off the top of your hat, if I'm shooting f2.8, with a shutter speed of 500 at ISO 800, and I need to go quickly to increase my depth of field from 2.8 to F11. What does that do to my shutter speed and or ISO combination? And it's important for you, I think, to memorize those numbers, as pedestrian as that might sound. So you have F2.8, F4, F5, F6. Now, these stops, those are full stops. Or if you go from a 250th to a 500th in shutter speed, that's a full stop. But within that, there are thirds of stops. So from 250 to 320. What this does, if you sort of memorize those relationships and those numbers, is it gives you the ability to be much faster, quicker thinking on your feet. So if you want to increase your depth of field, or if you want to increase the sharpness of an object in motion, then you can do that quickly. Now, obviously, with a modern camera, you can set it to a certain setting, and you can just adjust it, and it does it by itself. But my view, maybe it's old school, is that the more you can become familiar with that information, with those calculations, the more it will free you up to be an artist. The less time you spend thinking about the technique and the craft of the photograph, the more time you can think about the composition and the angles and the focus and the depth of field and all of those things that actually create the image that communicates your interpretation of the scene in front of you. And that's what's important, is communicating your unique interpretation of the scene that's in front of you. For better or for worse, a lot of people get really caught up in the gear, but I think letting some of that go and just learning it and becoming so familiar with it that it's like, you know how hot 80 degrees is. You know it. You don't have to think about it. So you should understand that with photography. And it will help you a lot more when you're in the field, freeing you up as you search around visually for a photograph. You'll know right instinctively, well, I need to shoot that at an F2, or I need to shoot that in an F22, or I need to shoot that at an 800th of a second, or I need to probably use 3200 ISO on this. It's just a liberating experience when you're so comfortable with those interactions that then you can really concentrate on the finer elements of your composition. It should become second nature.
So we have to understand how our system works and how it interprets the light that we take for granted on an everyday basis. Again, your eye and your brain work together as a, as a flawless singular unit that you don't even think about when it comes to visualizing the world around you. It's been going on for so long, you just take it for granted. Your eye automatically compensates for exposure. Your eye, your eye automatically compensates for color temperature. Your eye automatically compensates for almost everything and almost immediately. But unfortunately, your camera is not so smart. So understanding the way that your camera actually sees light, records light, interprets light is a very important thing. For instance, your eyes perceive intensity on a logarithmic scale. Your camera perceives intensity on a linear scale. What that means is, even though you might increase brightness in the world by fourfold, your eye will only interpret that as a brightness increase of twofold, just the way your brain works. If your camera sees a brightness of fourfold, it will interpret that brightness as fourfold and you have to compensate. So this is what I mean earlier in the other podcast about decoupling your brain from your eye because your camera does not see like your eye and vice versa. So the more you can start to think like a camera, the better you'll be. First, what are the limitations of your system? Well, the first limitation would be what's called dynamic range. Dynamic range is simply the ability to resolve from the brightest white with detail to the darkest dark with detail. So bright white clouds where you can see detail in the clouds to the shadow under the bush where you can see detail in the dark mulch. The range of brightness values from brighter brightness to darkest, that's called the dynamic range. Most modern systems have dynamic range of say 14 stops or so. This doesn't mean that you're gonna be able to always capture the brightest and darkest in the single frame. Your eye can do that almost immediately. Sometimes you have to sort of make a little adjustment, but you will as well in a camera. And this is probably the trickiest part of exposure is balancing that dynamic range. So say you have a set range of 14 stops. That doesn't mean you're stuck with what's brightest and what's darkest. You can shift that 14 stops up or down depending on what it is you're filming. And this is really the essence of exposure is finding the place in your scene where you want to place your perfect exposure and then working around that. Let me say that again. I call it your 100%. So as you look in a scene and you say, okay, here's my values, here's what my system can capture from brightest to darkest, where do I want to place my 100%? And knowing that you can shift the dynamic range up or down, so you might shift it up if it's a brighter scene or down if it's a darker scene. So you look in your 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 scene, you say, I want to place my 100% exposure, say for instance, uh, if you're looking at a landscape, I don't want to place it in the sky, I don't want to place it in the dark shadow, so maybe I'll place it somewhere uh, on the reflection of the bark of the tree, something in the middle tone. This will give you the most latitude of a scene latitude is an old film word, give you the most latitude from the highest brightness value to the darkest brightness value to the lowest brightness value. Another example of this, if you want to get further going, is uh, Ansel Adams' The Zone System. I'm not going to get too much into that uh, on this podcast, but a good way to study this idea is by learning The Zone System. 
Again, so how do you figure out where you want to place that 100% exposure? Well, part of it is understanding your system and what it can resolve and where you get the best detail and how you do your post-processing. If you're shooting a certain scene with a very bright sky and a dark shadow, you may understand that in order to get the detail in the sky without it blowing out, then you might lose detail down at the other end because you have to shift your dynamic range up or down. Again, when you're shooting a sky and it's blown out white, that's called clipping. You're clipping the white or you're crushing the blacks. If you crush the blacks, that means there's no detail there. Your system has recorded basically a black signal or a pure white signal. And if you go into your post-processing, like Lightroom or something, there's nothing you can do to get anything out of those regions of your photograph that are recorded as pure black or pure white. Pure white will simply come out to be gray if you try to darken it down, and black will be muddy and noisy if you try to brighten it up. So there's a, there's a thing on your camera called a histogram, which we'll get into in a few minutes, which can help you control your dynamic range and where you've decided to place your 100% exposure. Okay, so there's the basic functions of your camera and the basic limitations of your camera. How do you actually measure the light that's falling on a scene so you can interpret that and help your camera find the best exposure? Well, that's a light meter or a histogram, and they work in tandem to give you the best image that you can get. As a side note, you don't have to have a light meter. There's a thing called basic daylight exposure, and it will guarantee you a good exposure in bright sunlight no matter what. And basically all you do is you take the ISO, and you set the ISO and the shutter speed to the same number. You set the ISO to 500, you set the shutter speed to 500th of a second, and then you set the aperture to f16. It's called basic daylight exposure. Other people call it different things. Even without a light meter, that will give you a very good exposure in bright sunlight. Now, I have a chart that you can go off of that and you can say, okay, I'm shooting an open shade under a tree. This would be two stops more than basic daylight exposure. So if I set 500 to 500 and I just open up instead of f16 to f8 or maybe even 5.6 or 5.6 and a half, I'll get a good exposure in the shade. So there are ways to learn how to do this without even using your light meter and without even taking a photo and then monkeying back and looking at the back LCD screen to see if you got a good exposure. If you use this formula, you'll know that you can go home with a good exposure. And this is really the goal for me helping you with your exposures. And really the goal for me helping any photographer is spending less time looking at the back of your camera and more time looking at what it is you want to photograph. Looking at the back of your camera sucks up a lot of time, and more often than not, the image that you really want to shoot is going to happen while you're looking at the back of your camera. So the more comfortable, again, you can be with these calculations, and the more comfortable you can be with all aspects of your craft, the more time you'll actually spend doing your craft instead of reviewing your craft. And that's important. It's really important. So, a quick review. The dynamic range is the extreme range from bright to darkness that your camera can capture within a particular scene. That's very important. A particular scene. So, if your scene is very bright, for instance, you want to maintain the detail in the sky very close to the sun, you're going to have to place the top end of your dynamic range within that scene, part of the scene in order to maintain detail there. But because your camera only can resolve, say, 14 stops the other direction down, that means part of the darker parts of your scene won't fall within that range. So they'll just be black. Because you've chosen to shift the dynamic range 
up towards the brighter parts of the scene to use the, the total range of your camera to record the brightest parts. You're going to sacrifice parts of the darker parts. And the same with a dark scene. If you choose to focus your exposure on the darker parts of the scene, you may sacrifice the brighter parts of your scene, which will, might be blown out depending on the range of values within the actual scene you're looking at. So what I mean exactly by the 100% exposure is looking at a scene, analyzing a scene, and deciding where the best place is to center that exposure for your 100%, your solid exposure, so that you can still maintain detail in the highlights and in the shadows around that exposure that's acceptable for you to show the scene that you're trying to show. So again, you have your dynamic range, bright to dark, you can move that range up or down. It's not a fixed thing. What is fixed is the amount of stops between the brightest and the darkest something you can resolve. So again, you shift it up. If you want to resolve a whole bunch of very bright things, you'll sacrifice some of the darker things. Shift it down. If you want to resolve a whole bunch of darker things, you'll sacrifice some of the brighter things. It's important to understand that particular limitation of your camera so that if you're looking at a scene that has very bright things in it and very dark things in it at the same time, you're going to have to try to figure out where you place your dynamic range within that scene in order to capture the most detail possible in the places that you want to capture detail. And that's where you're going to put your 100% exposure. So you have your 100% exposure and then a few stops up and a few stops down from that. Or maybe just one stop up from that and a whole bunch of stops down from that. So really, what is the bottom line with exposure? Do you expose for the shadows? Or do you expose for the highlights? Or do you expose for the midtones? Where is actually the best place to put your exposure? Well, again, it depends greatly upon the scene that you're shooting. If it's all bright, if it's all dark, it depends on the effect that you're going for. But in general, in digital photography, there'll be a million different opinions about this, but in general, for, my, for me, when I'm shooting digital media, whether it's video or stills, I tend to favor the highlights. I tend to guard or protect my highlights because there's nothing you can do about a blown-out highlight in digital media. It's gone. It's pure white. There'll be no detail. There's nothing you can do. It's forever in, in the history of goneness. With film, it's a different story. For instance, Ansel Adams would generally expose for his shadows to maintain detail in his shadows and then control the highlight exposure during his printing process. So the chemical process would bring out the highlight detail, and then that's how he would generally expose for his negatives to protect the shadows. Now, sometimes when you look at the back of your camera, it'll seem as if the highlight is blown out, but when you actually bring it into Lightroom, there's a there could be a little bit more detail there. So that's why it's important to look at your histogram, which we'll talk about later, but it's important to look at your histogram or to turn on a function called peaking, which the camera system will tell you, it'll give you a little display of the parts of the image that are gone, that are clipped, that are blown out. This can be very useful when you're shooting sunsets or, or bright objects or, or even a portraiture where you have a very uh, maybe off the, 
the nose or the forehead where the light is reflecting particularly strongly, you might have a hot spot there uh, that you'll need to control, but your camera will tell you if you have a blown out hot spot on somebody's forehead where you've basically lost the skin detail or whatever detail you want. So in general, I protect highlights in digital photography. In other words, I expose to make sure that I can always pull out detail in the brightest parts of the image. Again, there's debate about that and people have their own systems and their own uh, preferences. But in general, if you protect your highlights in digital photography, you'll do fine pulling out your, your bottom level details in the shadows. Okay, so how do we decide where that exposure is and what the amount of exposure I need to have for a particular scene? Well, you use a light meter. Light meters come in two varieties. There's an incident meter and the meter that's inside your camera, which is a reflective meter, or some people call it a spot meter. An incident meter is almost always handheld, and it is something you'll find on a movie set or in a photo studio, uh, mostly used indoors where you have a lot of very delicate, very precise lighting environments going on. Incident meters are actually really great if you're doing outdoor portraiture where you can go up to your subject and you can get a quick reading of the ratio from uh, bright side to dark side of, of the face, and if you need to augment the light with a reflector or shade or sun or move your subject somewhere else. And they're also very useful when you're using a flash as a flash meter to judge the exposure of the flash. The thing with an incident meter is that you have to be near your subject to take a reading of the light that's falling on your subject. So you have to be out in the studio. You can't take the reading from the camera. You have to go out to the studio, put the meter next to your model's face or next to the background or next to the foreground or whatever element it is in the scene that you're trying to figure out for exposure wise. And the incident meter will tell you how much light is falling on that portion of the scene and what the exposure would be to render that correctly. So you stand out in the set somewhere, you point the meter back towards the camera with the light falling on the meter, and then you'll get an accurate reading of that particular spot in the photo. So then you'll be able to understand that, well, maybe my background needs to be a little bit brighter, maybe a stop brighter, maybe my foreground needs to be a stop darker. So in a studio setting, you're very careful to actually control your dynamic range. So the amount of light at the brightest part and the amount of light at the darkest part so that you make sure that all of the elements in your scene, the thing you're trying to shoot, are resolved at the right brightnesses that you want to convey to your audience. An incident meter is very good for establishing ratios, contrast ratios. So the ratio of the brightest part of, say, for instance, a face to the darkest part of the face. A lot of movies, say for instance, the face is what's called a split. So you have half the face in shadow, half the face in light. And those are very carefully controlled, whether it's a stop difference or a two stop difference or a stop and a half or three stop difference between one side and the other side. That's called a contrast ratio. And when you're shooting on a set or in a studio, that's very important to build these elements of contrast within your shot, within your scene, so that you create a sort of a 3D vibrant atmosphere with all these different layers of exposure, all these different layers of contrast. You do that mostly with an incident meter. The spot meter or reflective meter that's inside your camera works very differently. It measures the amount of light reflected back towards the camera. It doesn't measure the amount of light falling on a subject. It measures the amount of light coming through the lens reflected back. 
Now, these light meters are calibrated to give you an exposure based on that amount of light coming back at a middle gray. In-camera light meters are based on the theory of 18% gray. Ansel Adams invented an exposure system called the zone system, which is a 10-zone system from white to black and everything in between. So each zone represents a certain level of light intensity. The light meter in your camera is calibrated to 18% gray. Some cameras are actually calibrated more towards 12% gray uh, for a different reason, but we'll just stick on 18% gray for now. So why is that the case? Well, 18% gray happens to be zone 5, right in the middle between white and black. So your camera's always trying to give you an average exposure right in the middle there between white and black. So this normally works just fine because most people keep their camera on an average metering system. So your camera is looking at the entire scene and it's averaging all the intensities of the light and it's giving you an average exposure. And this works fine for the majority of regular situations where you're just out in the woods and you're taking a photo or you're in your house and you're taking a photo. It averages all of the values in the scene and it just gives you a nice solid average exposure. Now you can go up a little bit or down a little bit from that, but for the most part it's going to give you a solid digital negative that you can work for. Now there are two other modes in your in-camera light meter that are more precise. There's a thing called center weighted where it it puts an emphasis on the amount of light coming through the center of the image, and then there's a little ring around that where it provides a little bit of weighted measurement to the amount of light off of the center. So it gives you sort of an average reading for the center of your frame. Now this is how I usually just leave my camera on this setting because then you can sort of move your camera around within the scene. So you can move the scene around. You can look at the, a different part of your scene or whatever. And then you can take a reading from a particular part of your scene that you want to expose for. And then in my case, a 5D, you hold the, the trigger, the exposure shutter button down halfway, and it maintains that exposure. And then you reframe for your total, for your regular composition. And then there's a third method called a spot meter. And a spot meter measures just a very small portion of the scene, usually some part of it you've selected, some size of a spot right in the middle. And this is where it gets a little tricky with the in-camera metering, because remember, the camera meter is calibrated to give you an accurate exposure for 18% gray. In other words, if you hold an 18% gray card, which you can buy at a photo store, if you hold that in front of your camera and you take a meter reading off of that card, you set your camera to that meter reading, it will give you a solid exposure for 18% gray card. Now remember, it's calibrated for that 18% gray card. So if you point that same spot at, say, snow, it's going to try to give you a good exposure for 18% gray. So if you take a picture of snow based on the exposure from your spot meter, that snow will come out looking gray. Conversely, if you take a picture of a black leather couch, your camera is going to try to give you an exposure for 18% gray. So if you take a picture of a black leather couch based on the exposure from the spot meter inside your camera, that black leather couch will come out looking rather gray. So this is where it becomes important 
to think like a camera and to manipulate your camera to get what you want. So if you're using just the spot meter and you spot a, a, a bit of snow or a bright cloud, remembering that your camera is going to try to interpret that as 18% gray, you're going to have to increase the exposure by a stop or two so that you get a nice white crisp snow. Now this is the difference between using your spot meter, which is Remember, it's measuring a very small portion of the scene of the reflected light coming back into your camera, and it's looking at that as 18% gray for the correct exposure. That's why I don't use a spot meter all that much, except when I'm doing very detailed sort of work and I want to make sure I've absolutely nailed the exposure for a certain element of my scene. Okay, so there's one last component to this metering exposure combination. It's called EV or exposure value. Exposure value is a fairly simple logarithmic equation that states that the exposure value equals any combination of f-stop and shutter speed that yields the same exposure. In other words, a given exposure value would be the same for, say, if you're whatever ISO doesn't change, say you're shooting f2.8 at 500th of a second, and you change that to f4 at 1 250th of a second, so I've closed the stop down one stop, open the shutter speed up one stop, that's the same exposure value. It doesn't matter what the f-stop is or what the shutter speed is, as long as that combination yields the same exposure. That's a given exposure value. Now, on professional or on higher-end cameras, you have a exposure value or an exposure compensation button that goes up one or two, one being one stop, two being two stops. So if you change your EV, your exposure value by two, you're increasing by two stops. If it's negative two, you're decreasing by two stops. So a quick way to sort of augment the spot meter, which is 18% gray, is to use your exposure compensation or exposure value so that if you're shooting snow, for instance, and your meter keeps trying to make it gray, you can dial in an exposure value plus two. So no matter what combination of f-stop and shutter speed you use, it will increase the exposure by two stops, hence giving you a nice white snow. Conversely, if you're shooting a lot of very dark subjects, you can decrease your exposure value, exposure compensation, by minus one or minus two. So no matter which combination of shutter speed and aperture you use, the camera will automatically deduct one or two stops from that to make sure that you're going below the meter, which is, again, trying to make everything 18% gray. So instead of a milky gray couch, black leather couch, instead of that milky gray black leather couch, you'll get a nice black leather couch still with detail that you can pull out and accentuate to your liking. But exposure value is a, is a good thing to understand. Again, exposure value simply states that it's the value of a given f-stop and shutter speed that results in the same exposure. It doesn't matter what the f-stop is and the shutter speed is. If you've chosen a certain combination and you go up from that and down from that, adjusting your aperture and f-stop accordingly, you'll still maintain the same exposure value. Now, why would you use all these different settings? A matrix setting or an average setting, like I said, is good for a wide shot, like a, a landscape where you're shooting down a valley and you can see snow in the mountains and shadows down under the forest. You want to try to capture 
as much detail exposure wise as you can in that scene so that you can maintain detail in the snow and maybe get a little detail out of the dark shadow forests. So an average exposure in that situation is probably a good thing. Now if you're shooting in a very difficult exposure situation with a very specific subject, for instance something that's a dark subject surrounded by a bright sky, and you're trying to capture the dark subject, you don't want your camera to average that whole scene because you're maybe not really interested in the sky. So you'll take your spot meter or your center weighted meter and you'll point it at the subject that you want to shoot. Maybe it's a dark blue flower surrounded by very bright green foliage. And the flower is really what you want to get. And if the green foliage goes a little bright, well, that's okay. You're going to lift up your dynamic range to cover more of the lower intensity light values. And you're going to forget about the top of your dynamic range if it loses some detail in the, the whites, the, the, the brighter parts. So you'll center image, you'll center weight or spot image that dark blue flower. And then knowing that your camera's going to expose it for 18% gray, if it's a very deep violet flower, for instance, you might open up just the, even more, even, uh, even more out of that to pull out as much detail as you can in that very dark subject. So again, the only way you can really learn these sort of intuitively is to just practice, 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 practice. So whatever camera you have, put it on manual mode and go out and just play with your light meter. Practice metering off of bright subjects off of dark subjects, off of shiny subjects, off of dull subjects, pretty much anywhere. And the trick is eventually you'll get to the point where you know where you want to meter within a scene. So the metering is a little tricky, but with practice, you'll begin to understand. I, I recommend that you just take a lot of photos and look at how your camera renders brightness values. And with practice, you'll get it. And I'm sure that it'll become second nature as you practice moving your exposure up and moving your exposure down and becoming aware and becoming acutely aware of if I move my exposure up into the brighter parts of the scene, what am I going to lose in the shadows? And if I'm going to, if those shadows are important and I move my exposure down into those shadows, I'm going to lose some of that bright sky probably. And the only way to fix that, which we'll talk about later, is with filters or something like that. But remember, if you're exposing for the darker parts of your scene and you've blown out the sky, there's nothing you can do later on in Lightroom. It's just going to be white. So it's very important to sort of analyze what you're looking at and make sure that you've placed your exposure within there so that your dynamic range from bright to dark can capture as much as you want. That's basically the essence of working with a, a, a particular system. And each camera, each kind of film, each kind of sensor, whatever, is going to have a slightly different amount of dynamic range. Now, let's talk about the histogram. I hope most of you use a histogram. If not, it's good to learn how. The histogram is a graphical representation that you can call up on the screen of your camera or in Lightroom or whatever, they all have them. And it looks like a little sort of a, a waveform graph or something like that. And a histogram is a visual representation of your dynamic range. So to the left of the histogram represents dark values, all the way to the left is black, and all the way to the right is white. And everything in between is your middle zone grays. Now, a basic rule of thumb when you're looking at a histogram is you don't want everything backed up against the left-hand side and you don't want everything smushed up against the right-hand side. You want your values, your tonal values in a frame, 
Generally speaking, you want them spread out across the whole histogram. What that means is, is you're capturing a good solid recording of that image. So you've got good solid blacks, mid-tones, and whites. If you overexpose the sky, for instance, you'll see that the bars on the right-hand side, they go off or they go all the way to the top, depending on your histogram. And that means you're clipping the white. That means you're exposing the white so much that there, it's a digital signal of white. There will be no detail in that. And again, if you're on the left-hand side, that means you're too far underexposed. If all of the, the graphical representation is smushed up against the left, then what that means is you're smushing everything down into the black and you won't be able to retrieve anything, any detail out of that portion of the image. So a good basic beginner rule of thumb is when you have a histogram that looks like a nice sort of bell curve, starting at the left, rising up through the middle, and then trailing off again towards the right. As long as none of it is all the way bunched up left or right, you've got a nice solid exposure representing all of the various tones between black and white. That's what you kind of want. Now you can learn to manipulate that histogram later on a little bit more in detail, but as a beginner, as a place to start, you just want to make sure your histogram is nicely spread out or it's not all the way to the right or not all the way to the left. And most histograms, you can set a warning for the highlight or the, the darkness. When you're clipping the white or crushing the black, it'll show you that you've lost detail. You've gone too far. Then you want to either open up the lens or close down the lens or change your shutter speed or your ISO or however you're choosing to manipulate the exposure so that you have a nice solid histogram. Now there's an advanced technique that some people use, which I'll explain very briefly, where you overexpose, say you're shooting a dark scene, and your first instinct might be to shoot it as it is, dark, so that your histogram is mostly centered on the left-hand side, the darker side. So all of your values, maybe there's nothing bright in the scene. So everything is bunched up on the left-hand side. You don't really have anything on the right-hand side. Well, that's fine. That's a, that's a fine place to start. But some people use a technique where they overexpose a dark scene so that they push the dynamic range, they push their 100% exposure, they push the histogram to the right, and they overexpose all of this information so that they try to capture more information than what might be readily available to your eye. Your eye might see that black leather couch and a dark room, and you might expose for that black leather couch, and you might have a histogram that only has a little bit of stuff on the left. But if you overexpose all of that, maybe by a two stops, something like that, and you push your histogram to the right, you'll notice then that you cover more of the tonal ranges in your histogram than you might have the other way. And then when you take that digital negative, put it into Lightroom or whatever, then you you dial it back in Lightroom. But what that has done is it's given you more digital information to work with by filling up the histogram. It seems a little weird, but just try it once or twice and I think you'll see what I mean. Take a photo of something very dark, boost the exposure beyond what you think would be natural, look at your histogram with what your camera tells you to do, and then open up another two or three stops and you'll see your histogram move to the right. The whole graphical representation will slide up to the right. Then you've done that exposure, take it into Lightroom, and then bring it all back down. And theoretically, you'll keep more detail, you'll have less noise. Again, in brief, the histogram is a graphical representation of your exposure. Learning how to use it is a very good thing. Don't push everything to the right and don't push everything to the left. Make sure you filled up the tonal values in between. And again, what we're looking for is a good, solid, full representation of the light intensities 
in your scene that you're seeing in front of you. That's all you want. You want the best saturation of values from black to white that you can achieve. Sort of like a good audio recording. You want the highs and the lows. You want everything in between, and and that'll give you the best representation of an audio environment. Same with pictures. So if you're shooting something and you're just not totally sure where to put your exposure and whether it's going to look good if you slide your range up or slide your range down for the highlights or the shadows, what I would suggest is that you bracket some exposures. It's really simple to do. It's called bracketing. Some of the modern cameras, you can set it to do it automatically like a 5D does that. So all you're doing basically is uh, shooting a series of photos where you'll have one photo where it's the normal exposure, the exposure that you think is right. And then you'll shoot one or two photos above that. So maybe a half a stop or one stop or two stops more exposed than the one you've chosen, the normal exposure. And then you'll shoot one or two or three photos the other direction, half a stop, one stop, two stops, whatever it is you choose below that exposure. So then you have a whole range of exposures that you can go back then and look more carefully at on your computer in Lightroom. Now there's another interesting thing you can do with these bracketed exposures, and some cameras again do this in camera. It's called HDR photography or high dynamic range photography, and it's simply the camera shooting these brackets and then combining those images together. So it shoots basically an exposure for the highlights, the sky for instance, and then it shoots a normal exposure for the midtones, and then it shoots another exposure for the shadow areas, and then in camera, it combines those three images. As long as the camera's not moving, it has to be on a tripod. Each image has to be the exact same image, just different exposure. So it puts those three images together. So then you take the best of the highlight, the best of the midtones, and the best of the shadows. And you combine that together to create an image that has even more dynamic range than would be normal. This kind of photography is pretty fun, but the images sometimes tend to look a little hyper real. And uh, you just have to experiment with it because uh, sometimes the images just look uh, fake. They look totally just too much, but it's something to do. On another quick note, I'll just throw this in here. Be careful of your color profile as well. You might think, well, it's color profile. Well, yes and no. I always try to shoot my photos at a very sort of uh, neutral setting in the camera. You know how you can go in your camera and you can create a color profile that's, that's got contrast and saturation and all of these things sort of built in. So you can come out with like a vivid photograph or, a, you know, something that's, that's favoring the colors or the contrast. I shy away from baking in these attributes ahead of time because once they're baked in, they're harder to change later on. So I try to shoot the most neutral photo I can get. So again, we're trying to achieve the best digital negative we can find. And so the way you do that is you just shoot neutral across the board. Um, in video, it's called uh, a log exposure. So basically, you're trying to collect as much visual data as you can in the camera. And then later on in Lightroom or Photoshop, then you can adjust the contrast, the color, all of those things you can play with uh, much more greatly than you could if they were pre-baked into your photo. So again, bracketing up and down HDR where you bracket and then basically put those photographs together to artificially expand the dynamic range. And then also your color profile. Make sure you're shooting it a nice neutral way. You can look that up on the internet if you choose to. There are uh, lots of uh, settings people recommend you dial in this or you dial in that to get the maximum amount out of your particular system. 
Okay, next we're going to talk just a few minutes about that little screen on the back of your camera. It can be your best friend or your worst enemy. So I get a little worked up about this topic, so just bear with me for a couple minutes and then we'll move on. So the question is with the back of the camera, can or should I use it to actually make an accurate reference of the photo that I just took? Because you can't always tell from the back of the camera, nor should you try because you can't always tell by looking at the back of the camera, because that's just a, a basic representation of the image, the digital image, but it's not really a manipulated one that you can do in Lightroom and really pull stuff out of the shadows or you know bring down the highlights or do whatever you have to do to render your image. So that's why I don't always encourage you uh, to spend too much time looking at the back of your camera. It's basically a quick check. Am I in the ballpark? Is it focused? Am I in the ballpark? Do I have the depth of field I want? Do I have motion blur? Do I have motion sharpness? That's all your screen is for. Don't make a final judgment based on the back of your camera. And again, don't look at your camera every single time you take a photo. The whole goal of learning exposure is that you can shoot 200 photos in Africa on a safari all day long and never once look at your camera. You're looking at your animals, you're looking at your subject, you're looking at your photography. You're not looking at your camera. Don't get caught up in the gear, get caught up with your mind, get caught up with your art. The gear is just there, it's a tool. Just make sure you know how to use it as best you can and enjoy what you're doing. Enjoy the photography. I think a lot of people, as a note from my previous podcast, I think a lot of people think, you know, oh, a, a better camera will make me a better photographer. No. Better knowledge of photography will make you a better photographer. Camera is just a tool. Just a tool. Your brain, though, is the best thing you can do for your photography. Okay, enough about that little screen. Uh, I'd like to spend just a couple minutes on simple filtration for better exposure. Just talk about uh, two or three different kinds of filters and filtration that can help you get the exposure that you want. There's a lot of basic filters you can get which help you control photography. The, the most basic is one called neutral density. And what neutral density does is it reduces the intensity of the light hitting your sensor without changing the color temperature. Again, all it does is it reduces the amount of light without changing the color of the light. Why is this important? Perhaps you want to have shallow depth of field in a very bright scene. Normally in a very bright scene, people skiing, you're going to have to shoot at f16, f22, and that's going to give you a very deep depth of field, infinite depth of field, in fact, in many cases. So say you want a very shallow depth of field just with somebody's uh, face and their ski goggles and their helmet and all the trees and the hill in the background out of focus. What you do is you put neutral density on, on the front of the camera, so that reduces the amount of light hitting the camera, so you have to open up your f-stop, perhaps to f4, f2.8, and then what that allows you to do is control the depth of field within a very bright environment. That's the most common use for neutral density. Again, neutral density is simply a filter that reduces the amount of light without changing the color, and it comes in many strengths. One stop, neutral density, two stops, three stops, whatever it is you can choose to put on your camera. Neutral density is not the same thing as a polarizer. Polarizer basically controls light of a certain reflectivity coming into your lens. So there's when light bounces off a subject, it's going in all different ways scattering up and down and sideways and every which way. A polarizer sort of acts as a gate 
to allow just light reflecting in a certain direction to come into the lens. And, and you control that by rotating the, the polarizer. Polarizers are great mostly for reflections off of water or windows or cars. So what they'll do is because when you see a reflection, that's light coming into your eye from all different directions, polarizer will just clamp that down and only allow light coming from one sort of coherency. So light waves that are all sort of moving together in synchrony uh, instead of in all different directions. And then that's the way you control sort of reflectivity uh, off of a certain subject. You shouldn't, you can use a, a polarizer as a neutral density if you have to, because it's about two stops of reduction in light intensity, but I wouldn't always be my first choice. And then the other filter, which is useful, is called a neutral density graduated filter or graduated neutral density or an ND grad. And basically it's just a neutral density that starts at one end of the filter at full strength and gradually reduces through the middle of the filter so that by the time you get to the other end of the filter, you're completely clear. Why would you use this? Well, for instance, if you have a dark subject in the foreground and a very bright sky behind it, you would put this filter on your camera so that the neutral density part was in the sky and the clear part was allowing the dark subject to come through. So basically you're squashing the dynamic range of your image so that the sky is darker, less intense, and you're allowing that dynamic range to capture more of the darker part and you're darkening the top part. So you're, you're reducing, artificially reducing the perceived dynamic range of your eye to what the camera can handle. So you're going to get a sky that has detail, and then as you travel through the horizon, the, the neutral density part of the filter will trail off, and then at the bottom, you'll have a clear part of the filter, which allows you to get a full exposure for the dark subject in front of your camera. I don't carry all these filters all the time. Some cameras have built-in neutral density already. I, I don't shoot a lot with filters. There are a million different kind of filters. We could talk all day about color correction filters. We could talk about different effect filters, all kinds of filters. There's a million of them. But I think the most useful ones are neutral density, neutral density graduation, and polarizer. Now, another basic tool that I always try to travel with is a simple reflector. It's around maybe like what's called a, a Flexfill or Westcott brand makes one. Of, there's, a, there's a million brands. They basically looks like a Frisbee in a bag. And you pull it out and it pops open uh, into a much larger circle, so about four times the size that it is in a bag. And they're usually white on one side and maybe reflective gold on the other or whatever. They come in a lot of varieties. So white, hard white, silver, gold, all come mix, all sorts of things. And these are good for close-up stuff, for people especially. And what it does is it basically bounces light into the darker part of the shadows and you'll get a much more pleasing effect, especially with portraiture. If you're shooting, you know, senior portraits in the park, you should always have a reflector with you or a small flash. A small flash does the same thing. Uh, it just pumps a little bit of extra light into that dark area. Now, this starts us into a whole other universe of lighting and lighting effects and light manipulation. I don't have time today to talk about that. That's months and months of years of practice, but the point is, as you become a more advanced photographer, as you become more comfortable with these dynamic ranges, with how light and shadow interact together, you'll start to maybe have the need for a small flash unit, for more lighting modifiers, as they're called. So you might invest in a small light kit. You might invest in some more advanced equipment. But for the average photographer, a simple reflector and maybe a neutral density filter is all you would really ever need uh, to really sort of play with your exposure ranges within your photo. 
and again with exposure, is you're going to make a lot of mistakes, and that's the key. You want to make a lot of mistakes. You want to shoot hundreds, if not thousands of photos, and you want to screw a bunch of them up. And as a photographer myself, who's been doing this now for 30 years or so, I never delete a photo. Digital storage is cheap, and it doesn't take up much room. And why do I do that? Because a bad photo is a good lesson. Let me repeat that. A bad photo is a good lesson. You screw it up. Take time. Take time to understand why you screwed it up. Sometimes you just move the camera. Sometimes you, 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 you were moving, you were driving, and it's bumpy or whatever. That's fine. But if the exposure is wrong, or if your depth of field is wrong, or if your color is off, don't just delete it. Don't just sit there and look at the back of your camera and say, delete, trash can. Take a moment and say, why? Why did I mess that up? You'll learn more from the bad photos you take than the good ones you take. Believe me. And even to this day, uh, I don't spend time deleting. I don't because I'm there to photograph what I want. I'm not there to delete photos. Again, I shoot mostly in the field. I travel a lot for my work. And I don't want to spend the time consumed with deleting photos or, or worrying about this. I just shoot. I shoot and 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 I shoot. And then when I get home to the hotel or, or on the airplane, that's when I really look hard at the work that I've done and make sure that I've, you know, gotten what I want. And if I haven't gotten it, then I either go out the next day and try again, or I look at lunch, you know, but I don't, uh, I don't sit in the back of the car or whatever and constantly stare at the back of my camera to make sure I've gotten everything I want, because I trust that what I've shot the first time is going to be in the ballpark. And then I know enough about post-production that I can manipulate it to really the final image that I'm hoping to get. Um, and that's where you really want to be. You want to have that level of confidence, that level of security in your skill and in your artistic impression. Because remember, again, you only have a few seconds to convey whatever it is you're trying to shoot. And some people spend hours and hours and hours composing a single shot. And that's great. But other times you have to react quickly. There's, a, there's maybe a natural event that's only happening very briefly. And you have to be confident in your ability to capture that without spending half of the time looking at the back of your camera as the volcano erupts and you just miss the best part because you were staring at your knobs or your buttons or you're worried about a, making sure the color temperature is actually perfect or whatever it is. Again, your gear is just a tool, but your mind is, is, is way more important. So train yourself in these skills and they'll pay you back a thousand million times over. Okay, I've got a couple listener submitted questions that we're going to go over real quick. The first is, if you are shooting in bright light and there are harsh shadows, how do you shoot for a subject in the shadows without blasting out the background? Or how do you shoot that scenario without having to expose for the background while using a flash on your subject in the shadow? So this particular scenario is sort of the nightmare perennial problem for any photographer. How do you balance a dark foreground with a very bright background? For instance, you have a group of people on the beach and... It's late in the afternoon, the sun is behind them, you want to take a picture, but you also want to see the ocean. So you've got people with shadow on their face and a very bright ocean and sky behind them with a bright beach. You have to find the delicate balance where you've pushed the sky and the waves to the point where you're, say for instance, on your histogram. So you've pushed that point to the point just before they clip. So the sky, especially, not all the way to the right, just at the right edge right at the right edge. And what that'll do is that'll save you from blowing out your sky and it will 
give you as much detail as possible in the shadows, and then you're going to have to go back into Lightroom or Photoshop or whatever photo thing you use and brighten up the shadows, which will be brightening up their faces. So without additional lighting or flashes or filters or reflectors, things like that, you can either reframe the shot so that you have less extremes of contrast within your composition. So you kind of try to reframe those people on the beach so you have less bright sky. Or maybe you turn them a slight angle so you can still see some ocean, but then there's some light on their face. Or with your foreground, with your dark foreground element that you want to shoot and there's a bright background, maybe you can change your camera angle. Maybe you can change your focal length. Uh, Maybe you can work with your composition to sort of hide those extremes of contrast that you're trying to reduce. Learning the tools we've used so far and understanding the dynamic range of your camera from the extremes it can capture sort of highlights the shadow. Then you need to look at your scene and you need to decide what's important for you to render in order to communicate that photo. So are you really interested in the detail of the dark foreground element, whatever it is? In that case, you might just have to expose for that and just let the highlights go wherever they may go. Because there's really, um, without a filter, without any additional lighting, there's really not much you can do. But here's where it's really important to understand the limitations and capabilities of the camera that you're using. So if you know that your camera is terrible with this kind of contrasty situation, then you should reframe it or or expose it in a different way. Then you should recompose the photo in a different way to, to sort of give your camera a crutch in order to render that scene. Like I said, you don't really have a whole lot of choices in that situation except to make a conscious choice about what areas of the photo are really important for you to show accurately or in the way that you want to. And sometimes it's okay if the background blows out a little bit. If you're really motivated, you can always go into Photoshop and replace that blown out sky. But again, it just comes down to sort of really reconsidering your composition and being aware of the capabilities of your camera and stretching that to the absolute uh, maximum uh, that you can try to achieve from highlight to shadow or vice versa. So this actually would be a great time to try HDR if your camera is capable of that, where you would take an exposure for the bright background, an exposure for the nice midtones, and an exposure for the shadow area that you're trying to sort of capture. Obviously, you'll need a tripod for that because uh, HDR is very difficult to do handheld, but it might be a good time to try HDR if your cameras, even iPhones can do HDR, so it might be a good time for HDR or bracketing, and then uh, in that situation, you could bracket up and down a couple stops. It'd be a good learning experience for you to see exactly what you're capable of bringing out of the shadows or bringing out of the highlights, what you can save in the highlights or what you can save in the shadows. So that's a very tricky situation and it's all too common, unfortunately. It's just one of those things that you, the more you do it and you'll get used to it and you'll get used to sort of knowing your equipment and knowing what choice you can actually make, that's sort of realistic for that situation. But a lot of it just depends on you deciding what's really important in the scene. Now, if you have a flash, it says, or how do you shoot that scenario without having to expose for the background while using a flash? Again, what I would do is I would set that exposure so that you still have the background a little bit. It says without having to expose for the background. Now, if the background doesn't care, you don't care if it blows out, then just expose for their face. If that's your subject or whatever your subject is, just expose for that face and let the the sky naturally do its thing if that's what's important. Again, we're talking about the limitations of dynamic range of your camera sensor. 
it's not as good as your eye. So you can't resolve from super, super white, bright sky to super, super dark detail in the same photo. It's very difficult without any manipulation of the, of the system you're using. So a flash is a good option here. I would, if it were me, I would have someone hold the flash off to the side, not on the camera. On-camera flash can look pretty bad even in daylight. And flashes, again, are good in daylight because they can fill up your shadows and bring some subject, bring your subject a little bit of life. So I would have someone hold the flash off to the side a little bit to give it more of a natural angle of light. And then I would set the flash not at full power. I would have set the flash at just enough to sort of fill in their faces. And then I would expose for the sky again with the histogram, bringing that back just a little bit and then filling up the shadows, maybe say a stop or two worth of flash in those shadows. Or you can use a reflector. Like I said before, the, the fold up reflectors, you can reflect some, some light back into those faces. And again, basically it's looking, if you have a scene where you have a very bright subject and a very dark subject, you have to make a compositional story choice as to what's more important. If you have nothing else to manipulate the, the subject with, again, and this is a scene that maybe you could use a graduated neutral density filter. So you could put that in front of the camera and you would darken down the sky while allowing the people on the beach to be fully exposed. You could do that as well. Uh, sometimes with neutral density, it can look a little fake. If you have the, if you don't have the gradation properly placed, it can look a little weird, but that's another option. You could use a gradated filter. So that was a pretty long answer to a pretty short question, but I think we covered a few options there that you can use in that situation. So I hope one of them works for you. Our next question, how do you shoot something that sparkles and is lit from the inside? Well, this one's easier. <laughs> this one's a lot easier because you have the ability to take this lantern, this art piece and put it wherever you want. And you have the ability to, to really control the situation. So this is a great example of where you would have a little studio and where you might use an incident light meter and where you might set up a still life shot. This is a great example of where you would want to take that lantern because you want to show off the light that's inside that lantern and the beading, the color beading around it. You want to take that wonderful artwork and what you want to do is you want to expose take your camera if you have the can kind of camera you can do this with and point your light meter at the sort of brightest part of that lantern the brightest sparkly part and then you want to expose for that and then take a photo and see what's happening to the rest of the image around it now in this case i would shoot it in my house or i would shoot it maybe at sunset so you want to wait till the brightness of the sunset is it equal to two or a little less than the lantern. So you might put it outside on your table and as the sunset begins to darken and you get that purpley in the sky and you take a photo of your lantern properly exposed with the sparkly light inside, then you'll have this nice purple dark sky behind it. And what you basically want to do is have your background, I would say two stops less than the brightest part of your lantern. And then, so what you're doing is you're manipulating your dynamic range so that the highest part of your dynamic range equals the brightest part of the lantern. So you don't lose any detail in the lighting of the beads or the artistic work. And then the darkest part, you don't really want a dark black either. That's going to look weird in a still life, but you do like, you do want to have some dark tones in the composition that sets the artwork off that allows the artwork to speak for itself, to show itself off. And the way you do that is to make sure you control the background 
and make sure it's darker. So again, I would shoot the lantern early in the morning or later at night when the when the background, when the sky or the lighting, the natural lighting becomes about two stops or so less than the lantern. And you'll know what that feels like. Two stops is is not dark, not super dark. It's certainly not dark with detail like black but with detail. So it's it's above a black, it's above a dark. You can still see color, you can still see detail, but it doesn't compete with your subject. And this is an important thing about lighting. You don't want your subjects competing with one another within the frame. And the previous question about blowing out the sky, that can be really annoying if it's competing with your subject. Again, you want to make it as easy on the viewer as possible. So you don't want elements, unless it's a purposeful artistic thing, you want to create that tension in your photograph. You don't want these intensity elements competing with one another because people will have a tendency not to know where to look. The brightness of a scene will immediately draw an eye very quickly. You'll look at the brightest part, but you don't want that competing perhaps with a darker subject. So again, there's what's called high key imagery where everything is light. So you have a, a, a beautiful rose against a, a, a very white background. This is done a lot for brides and things like that. Um, because you don't want that competing shadow, that competing darkness with your bright subject. And again, then we have low key lighting, like in a jazz club, somebody playing the piano. So you have the dark piano, you have a person in a dark suit. You know, you maybe have one light just shining down on that person's face and the key, their hands on the keyboard. And what that does is it immediately tells the story, it immediately tells people where to look, and it gives them the feeling and the mood and the texture and the tone of the, of the story you're trying to tell. And so again, it's very important when you think about your exposure, not to create these situations where there's all these competing elements within a scene. Because again, people get confused, they don't know where to look, and if people give you more than a couple seconds and they don't know where to look, they'll move on to the next photo in the gallery. So you wanna help people with your exposure draw their attention to where you want them to look, focus that attention via your light, via your composition, via your depth of field, via, via everything you've learned as a photographer. You want to be able to shape that image immediately and focus immediately on what's important because a photograph is simply a short little story or a short little informational snippet and that should happen quickly and without question. And if you've done that, you've done your job as a photographer. So again, with the lantern, you want to make sure people look at the lantern and that's all they look at. So make sure that there's a little bit of surrounding environmental element there because you don't want just pure blackness because then people will think, well, why is this lantern sitting in pure blackness and what's going on in that blackness? You don't want people to have that question either. Uh, in the jazz club scene, that's fine because people are familiar with that. They know what's going on in the blackness and you've chosen to highlight something that's very dark. But in, in the same breath, if you were to shoot um, somebody's house, for instance, and there's a lot of very dark shadow in there, people are going to wonder what's going on in that shadow. You know, what's, what's happening there? What's, what, how is that part of the story? So you want to make sure that you've set up these contrasts very clearly, the contrast between light and shadow, between darkness and light, because those are emotional topics. Those are, you know, prehistoric, primordial things that human beings think about when they see brightness and they see darkness. Darkness tends to 
to elicit fear and to elicit mystery and to elicit uh, um, scariness and all of these things. Uh, that's why most horror movies are dark. And brightness tends to elicit the opposite, you know, safety and, and uh, cleanliness and all of these things. So make sure that you've thought about the contrast between these brightness values and these darkness values when you're setting up your photograph. It's incredibly important. Just as much as color is, just as much as focus is, depth of field is, you're using all of these elements within your composition to quickly tell your story and convey your mood and your and your texture and your feeling and your information, whatever it is you're trying to get across in your photo. So to wrap up an even longer answer to an even shorter question, basically you want to set up a really nice still life, maybe using the sky as a background, and then wait for the sunset and let Mother Nature do the work for you for the background. So you have everything set up in the foreground, you have your exposure just right for your sparkly lantern, and then when the sky gets just to the right exposure, snap away and you should have a beautiful balanced scene with the exposure for your lantern and the highlights solid there and then a nice darker purpley blue violet sky in the background and it should look absolutely wonderful the only problem is of course you can only do this in the evening or in the reverse during the day as the sky gets brighter at sunrise if you don't have any lights or anything but if you set it all up in that situation you should have a fabulous outcome good luck i hope this was helpful for your question Okay, well, that's about it for exposure. Just remember, learn those numbers, learn those relationships, learn those intuitive feelings of color and contrast, where to place your 100% exposure, how to move that dynamic range up or down the scale in order to capture the most of what it is you want to capture and create the best digital negative you can. That's the most important thing creating the best digital negative you can, exposure-wise, lighting-wise, obviously you have to have it in focus, all of those kinds of things. And then, you know, think about what you've done with your contrast, where you've placed your brightness, where you've placed your shadows. Think about all of those elements and how they play together as a seamless story. That's what you want, a seamless story of all of these combined elements flowing through a photograph where nobody ever gives it two second thoughts about why is that so bright or why is that so dark. You've given them all the information that they need in the places they need to understand your vision of that scene, your interpretation of that reality. That's what a photograph is. That's what you are as an artist. You're simply trying to convey that to me, and I really want to see it. Good luck. Happy shooting. You can always email me at andy at andrewwex.com if you have questions or comments. Andy at A-N-D-R-E-W-W-E-G-S-T dot com. Andy at andrewwex.com. Questions or comments are always welcome.